0: Hello, and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Sarah Thompson, the public information officer for the ACFE. And today I am joined by Takara Small, a journalist and podcast host who is named one of Canada's 100 most powerful women for her reporting and community work. Thank you for joining us today, Takara. Thanks for having me. So you are currently a tech contributor for several outlets, which include CBC, BBC, and The Walrus. We've seen some recent examples of investigative journalism exposing big frauds like Wirecard and Theranos. But with your background, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the role that online media and social media plays in shedding light on fraud and educating the public on how to avoid fraud.
1: Yes, well, I mean... You know the online space is one of the most accessible ways for people to learn and to educate themselves so it makes sense that that's where a lot of people will go to seek out information ironically it's also the place where a lot of people go um, to perpetrate frauds to, to you know trick unsuspecting people into investing in coins that don't really exist and have no value or um, lure people into providing, you know, personal information and data that can be used against them or sold in the future. It's it's such an, you know, you're probably going to hear me say interesting a lot. (laughs) It's an interesting time um, because there's just so much information out there and it's very hard for people to sift through what's true and what's not true. I will say, That the online space has empowered certain people um, to fight back against misinformation and it for journalists themselves it helps them connect with people that perhaps you know in other different times they wouldn't have been able to do that there are so many people who i just recently did a podcast about the cryptocurrency exchange one of the biggest in canada and there were so many people that felt comfortable reaching out anonymously online that i doubt would have had perhaps the opportunity or the ability to do that in person i think right now it takes a lot of i think a lot of the onus is on individuals to know and understand what's happening in the cybersecurity world because a lot of the time people and journalists you know are guilty of this too they they talk and speak to the audience that that already understands what's happening. They use words and terminology that the average person has never been exposed to and, and would likely have a hard time understanding. Um, I think one important thing to share is that when we're talking about disseminating information, um, we're talking about journalists, you can't see me doing like, you know, air quotes. Um, it's because there are a lot of social media influencers now who are considered journalists or are considered, you know, reporters, and they don't necessarily um, apply the same type of standards that a, a traditional news org would. And so I think that's the tricky part: is that anyone who has maybe a sizable audience is viewed as an expert or viewed um, as someone with a who's doing providing information because they're doing it with the best of intention and not because they're trying to make money at the end of the day. Yeah. Very big answer. Sorry. <laughs> the tangent of it. Yeah.
0: That made me think of like um, in my role here as public information officer, obviously I try and reach out to different journalists that are writing about the fraud space to see how we might be able to provide information to help, whether that's expert interviews or Uh, data from some of our different reports and stuff. And I do feel like I've seen over the past couple years, probably like the past four years or so, but more and more journalists having their email addresses or an encrypted saying that they have an encrypted way to, um, to take in tips from anyone and having that right in their Twitter bio. And I feel like that with you saying people becoming more comfortable being anonymous online and giving more information and the very structure of online kind of maybe helping facilitate that, those tips. And with fraud, we always, I mean, our data has shown that tips account for the highest amount of how fraud is detected. So the more that we can encourage tips, I think the better, but it's interesting to see journalists really using that and harnessing that.
1: I think in this day and age, The ability for people to reach out to journalists in a secure way, um, in a very secure, healthy way, is beneficial to society.
0: Yeah. But like you said, there is that downside of if you're tipping off someone that you think can do something about it or people acting out of ill will and sending false tips to people who might not have that like you said, kind of the the journalistic background to actually, okay, this is an interesting tip. Now I'm going to do my due diligence, but just running with it being like, well, someone said this. So I have to share it with all my followers that this is what's happening.
1: Yeah. And like, I think, you know, from what I've seen, it's a lot of people who are sharing information that isn't correct. And a lot of people who are, their entire focus is building or growing their fan base, not necessarily providing information to their followers or viewers that they can use in their life that is that is helpful. So like, um, what I mean by that is just that, you know, there are some people obviously who just will share, reshare um, rumors and innuendo and all that stuff. But there are a lot of people who are um, just incredibly well known in their space and they just disseminate and share information with no, um, with really no care for how it will impact someone who acts on it. And these, you know, a lot of people who are famous or influencers will just, their whole entire focus is growing or enlarging their fan base or gaining some type of notoriety so that they can fund their next endeavor. Um, and then that's, I think that's so dangerous because how do you, how do you adequately fact check that when it gets to such a big size?
0: yeah. I've always thought that now that we are where we are in society with social media, with online media, all this stuff, I feel like they should start requiring some sort of media literacy class in in schools just to be like, hey, here are things that you need to check before you just accept something as truth.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, But switching gears a little bit, but similar field um, to your expertise in everything tech. We've all been dealing with many new issues and vulnerabilities thanks to a large part of the global workforce working remotely during the pandemic. Um, In your remarks at our recent Canada conference, you stress the importance of companies being transparent with their employees and customers. And that could mean transparency about why they're implementing certain cybersecurity measures or being open even about data breaches or attempts to hack the company data. In your opinion, why do you think it's so important for organizations to be transparent? And do you have any advice for companies that might be hesitant about, you know, being that open?
1: Yeah, you know, you mentioned the shift to remote work to um, virtual work, and that has just opened up a Pandora's box when it comes to data breaches and and leaks. Um, of that sort i think there are a lot of companies and i've spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs um, and company leaders who want to do the best thing they possibly can for their customers or their clients and sometimes they're confused at how that happens also leaks and data breaches happen and sometimes you know these companies don't know um, because they're so could convert uh, but it's so hard to um find these type of these types of breaches so they happen sometimes without anyone's knowledge and it can take days months years to discover it which is why i think it's always good to be proactive companies should try to have some type of um you know process in place for if that happens you know what they can do what they shouldn't do but sorry back to your your larger question about you know why it's so important for organizations to be transparent and I think it's because we're living in a day and age where you should assume your business um, may be hacked, uh, depending on the size. If it's a small business, you may not have a lot of resources at your disposal, but you should at least assume that it could happen now in the future, um, that a Third party could be hit by an attack as well. A lot of companies uh, rely on third parties to deliver the the software to deliver the services um, that they need. Especially as we all are remote, or apologies, some some of us may be remote right now. So it's good to have that in place. Um, And being transparent about when things go bad is helpful because you don't want your client or customer to find out another way, which would damage the trust they have um, for you. And it's, you know, there are so many ways that if you are hacked or and you know, you are do find yourself in that horrible space that it'll come out at a later date in time. And you don't want customers to think that you're hiding something. And we I'm sure many people these days, they read the news, they see that it's always there's, you know, this company was hacked this day or this, you know, company had some type of data leak. Uh, I I think customers understand that this happens and it's now a regular part of doing business and just living their life online. So it's not like this is something that is completely unusual. I also think, you know, things are changing so fast. I mean, I, I remember, I think this was like last month, I'd say there, you know, Lloyd saying that they were going to, um change how they provide cyber insurance. So that was like huge, you know, like the fact that they're, you know, going to limit the type of insurance packages they offer when it comes to breaches and hacks and ransomware, or they're going to increase premium rates for it shows that like the industry, one of the biggest markets in the world sees this as not going away, but likely increasing in the years to come. So that's a sign that, every business no matter how big or small should have some type of plan in place and again like i don't i don't say that um in any way to shame companies that don't and even if you're a small business if it's just like okay if this happens what do we do what information do we um you know segregate what can we tell our employees just simple things like that are so important and I, I am in Canada, but I know in the U.S. there are like a slew of laws that they're that are right now working their way through. Um, that may be—I don't know—at this point in time, I don't think any of them have passed. But like the there's the cyber cyber incident notification act, which you know gives 24 hours <laughs> for companies to report and you know some type of breach. So now, and there's a fine if they don't do that, um, which is uh, tied to their gross revenue. So we are entering a space where not only will, is there potential damage to how they're perceived by their customers, but also huge massive fines that can be applied if they don't do it right away. So, you know, being transparent, having some type of process in place um, is necessary. It's not a, a nice to have.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Just since you mentioned also being aware of if you have your cybersecurity through a third party, but just third parties in general, I forget. It was one of the really big breaches, and I want to say it was pre-pandemic, and it's escaping me now, but it was, I I think, like a very big bank, and they ended up getting hacked because someone managed to hack their HVAC system that had been controlled, and it was like a third-party vendor, but it was just wild to think that it's like they had what they thought was robust cybersecurity for the bank itself, but it was this little back door that they hadn't, I don't know if they didn't think to put it as part of their cyber cybersecurity plan, but just that they were able to hack the HVAC provider and then somehow get in through that way, which is crazy yeah. to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, in Canada, we've seen some of our major Banks. We have four major banks and um, we've seen just in the last like three years, um, two banks hacked. So this is just like a normal part of life now. And I, I also think that customers... You know, people in general should also have some type of credit reporting in place. I know everyone's probably thinking, oh, well, there was that issue um, not too long ago. But it's so important for people to also have some type of plan in place or notification um, that if something does happen or someone tries to impersonate them or, you know, even worse, that they're able to have, um, you know, some process, something in place that alerts them to that, whether it's through your bank, whether it's through credit reporting services, something like that. Um, cause yeah, it's just like a different world now. Everything there have always been, you know, hacks and there've always been data breaches, but everyone is living their life online through work, through their personal side that it's just so tricky.
0: Yeah. Yeah to keep track of all the moving pieces of your identity or your company's data and yeah, getting a hold on that. I um, feel like
1: people listening to this, this podcast will be like, well, okay, thanks for the doom and gloom. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I'm paranoid now.
0: <laughs> I feel that, like you said, since we've seen such an increase in this and it, it's common knowledge sort of like I've always considered myself a realist when it comes to that. And I, I, I mean, years ago, I basically figured eh, every piece of information needed to steal my identity is probably out there already. And so, like you were saying, just staying on top of credit reporting, staying on top of different alerts, it's we have come to a point, at least in my opinion, in society, that it's just a matter of when someone might try to put all those pieces together and not a question of if. And so just the only thing you can do is really be proactive in being aware of different things and and kind of having a plan in place. Okay, what happens if I do personally, if someone tries to apply for a mortgage in my name or something, what steps do I go through then? Because mm-hmm. I'd rather I'd rather be a little bit pessimistic but be proactive than just think like, oh, no, people wouldn't people wouldn't try and hack that much because I know it's not. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I do and I do recognize that putting the onus on the victim is not in any way fair and it is not a sustainable plan for any country. So that's where laws and legislation come in. Right. Like if we are going to say that this is part of you know, our day-to-day lives moving forward, this is a reality people will have to face, then there should be laws, there should be systems in place for people who fall victim to this horrible type of crime. And I'm talking about on the individual level, but also, you know, small businesses who fall victim to this. There should be legislation in, and assistance in place at a national level that's free for people. Yeah. But, you know, will it happen anytime soon? <laughs> I don't know.
0: <laughs> well, it remains to be seen. Um Moving a little bit to the side of tech stuff, everyone's favorite hot topic right now, cryptocurrency, the rise of cryptocurrency. Um, You have expressed some concern about the stability of these cryptocurrencies. Do you think that they're here to stay or do you think that this might be a little bit of a bubble that will burst?
1: Yeah, I think both can be true. I think they can be here to stay. Um, but also the type of activity we're seeing right now, the, the amount of money that's being invested into this space, um, can also see a lot of consequences for people. And I think this is not, this is not me saying like cryptocurrencies, um, are, you know, are of no use, um, they shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't be allowed to purchase coins. That, that's not what I'm saying. But what I have found is there are a lot of everyday people, um, people who aren't multimillionaires, who are heavily investing, because they don't know where to put their money, they are seeing and recognizing that inflation is going up, but wages aren't Perhaps if they have a small amount of money in a bank, the interest isn't providing the type of return that would allow them and maybe their children to um, access health insurance, if something bad were to happen, to purchase a home. So you're seeing you know, people who are a little desperate and they want to have a return, they want to provide money for maybe their retirement, maybe to be able to buy groceries, or send money back home, putting all of this um, this you know money into a space that is incredibly volatile. And so, I I worry about how when we talk about cryptocurrency, uh, you know, in kind of some of the mainstream media outlets, we only talk about people who have you know made a ton of money, people who went from zero to multimillionaire overnight because they managed to. And uh, invest at the right time, and got out before things crashed. And there are so many regular people who are chasing a high that I feel we probably won't ever see again. Like Bitcoin, people who, you know, in the early, early days before I think it was largely adopted by by most um, by most people, they managed to see huge returns. They managed to, you know, people you know, more than quadrupled what they put in. But for a lot of people now who are trying to chase that high, it's unlikely. And what's more likely is they'll lose everything because they don't always understand how the market works. And so that's kind of what I what I worry about um, is desperate people looking for a solution that really doesn't work for them. And there are so many companies now that are that allow you to pay for a coffee or shoes or whatever um, using select currencies. And that adds some legitimate legitimacy to it. it. It makes it seem like, okay, well, if this company accepts it, then there must be something there. And without that deeper research, they may end up losing everything.
0: Yeah. I happen to, to agree with you on just, I'm, I'm skeptical about it and I know that I haven't done nearly as much research as I'm sure you have and other people that I've talked to but it just it seems a little a little suspect and I do wish that like you said with uh media coverage of it mainly highlighting the stories of like oh look at this this person you know bought three bitcoin back in Mm -hmm. 2010 and now they're using that to buy a house and all that stuff it's it's kind of it's misleading Yeah. And I hope that, I mean, obviously I do not hope that anyone who has invested in cryptocurrency loses things, but I, if that happens or when it happens, I hope that there's equal amounts of coverage of that just to show kind of like the darker side of, of crypto. And I mean, you highlighted one very dark piece of the crypto, uh, landscape in your podcast, death in crypto land. So for all listeners, if you haven't listened to Takara's podcast, death in crypto land, give it a listen. It's very good. Very interesting. Just giving yeah, you, a, you a little plug there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's, um, it's a really good story and it's, um, you know, for those who are listening and are like, they maybe worry that they won't understand maybe some of the technical aspects when it comes to, to this cryptocurrency story, it's really, um, it's, it's really more of like, a um, an anthology of of some sort, you know, like we we talk about a particular person who owned one of the biggest cryptocurrency exchange, and there are just so much shady stuff that went down, and then he died right before, right as investigators were looking into what was happening, and millions of people around the world, not just Canada but around the world, lost millions of dollars, and. Um, It just goes to show how weird this space is um, and how unregulated it is. I actually just tweeted something not too long ago about like, you know, just in the last month or so, there have been like three major uh, cryptocurrency thefts that totaled like 404 million. So like, you know, even if you happen to invest in the right currency at the right time, there's just so much unknown. And another thing that I find like so interesting is that a lot of people are like, you know, cryptocurrency um, is a way of the future and this will, you know, completely remove the need for certain societal rules or legislation or whatever um, that we use now. It'll free people from being, you know, indebted to a system that doesn't help or work for them. And. It's interesting because whenever things go wrong in this space, like, you know, whenever things um, uh, happen to go south when things don't work out or people lose money or things are stolen, it's funny that people always rely on the same institutions and laws that they completely disregard or they feel are antiquated. So it's just it's just this interesting trend I found that people will be like, this is the future and we don't need... the the rules of society that we rely on now and xyz but then when things go wrong they lean on it heavily to right that wrong or to make things um uh at least a little bit more equitable so it's just just interesting it's this entire space is worthy of like i don't know a documentary and a hollywood series maybe maybe someone will write the book that will be turned into a documentary which will then hollywood will adapt into a major motion picture, and then a video game. I think that's the, the path forward now everyone uses.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm sure that as people are just struggling to to figure it out, we'll see, we'll continue to see a lot of attention on it, which, mm-hmm. yeah, is good. More information is good. It's better than less information. <laughs> um, changing topics completely though now. Um, We are excited to have you as a keynote speaker at our upcoming Women's Summit this March. Mm -hmm. Um, I've I've always felt like the tech industry has a reputation for being traditionally a boys club. What do you think that organizations, individuals, or society just as a whole can do in order to make more space for women in the tech industry?
1: Yeah, um, I do like how you added society as a whole, because I do think that plays a major part in it. I think for a very, very long time, um, we talked about diversity when it comes to women, when it comes to BIPOC, um, Black Indigenous People of Color, um, we always framed it as kind of like a pipeline problem. And that if we just had more people within this industry, or we you know, provided people with the right network, they would be able to find long-term work and they'd be able to kind of move up the corporate ladder. Um, But I, I I think that's not an accurate portrayal of the, the reasons that women and people of color find it challenging to stay and succeed. Um, There are a lot of other mitigating factors. And if you're a woman, you know, this entire pandemic has showed that um, it's challenging to be able to carry the burden of taking care of kids, of the home, the household, while also working full time. You know, I I don't have kids, um, but a lot of uh, the people I work with are married with kids, and the struggles they've had to go through. Women still do most of the housework, and um, when kids were forced. To, they, Again, this is talking about Canada, but in Toronto, we were in lockdown last year for like almost a full year. If you add it all together, um, and having to ensure kids are able to learn at home and and are able to um, are also mentally safe and healthy while doing your job is just one of the most stressful things I've I've seen my colleagues go through. And so I think at at the societal level, we need to rethink what it means for. Um, women and BIPOC in this space and understand that the challenges they have to deal with are completely um, different than some of their counterparts. It's just not fixing the flow of talent into the space will not resolve that issue. Also, women are paid less than men. Um, so for the same amount of work and output, women receive less money, which impacts you know, daycare, being able to um, stay late, to do overtime if they want to, being able to afford the ability to network, like all of those things factor into our societal. And so we have to think about how to create an equitable place not just within the organization, but um, across the board, if we want to inject more um, talented people. And at the end of the day, you know, these these companies want to be profitable. A lot of them talk about profit and and meeting certain deadlines and in meeting investor, you know, requirements. And to do that, you want the best of the best. So it just makes sense to provide a playing field that allows people to do and to enter the space and to stay if you have to constantly keep training new people or the best in that field decide hey it's financially better for me to stay home instead of work it doesn't it ends up hurting everyone so if the industry as a whole wants to change i think tackling some of um, the inequalities that exist outside, um, you know, within society as a whole, just makes sense and is better. I do also think that um, understanding that some of the cultural factors, as well within a company, can can have an effect. For a long time, there was discussion of culture fit. You know, if this person is talented, um, they also have to be a good culture fit. But if the culture of the company um, doesn't, anyway embrace diversity doesn't embrace people of color doesn't embrace women um then you're never going to you're never going to change the makeup of your board of your staff
0: yeah that makes sense if the culture is already established as kind of that stereotypical white gamer guy who wants to spend a lot of time in the office and so paid leave isn't prioritized as much as like ping pong tables in the office or having a bar or snacks or something like that. That's, you're already create in my opinion, not trying to, to say anything controversial, but just in my opinion, that already is kind of setting up a situation that you're not going to, it's not going to work to bring on people who aren't that type of person immediately. Yeah.
1: And, you know, for startups that don't maybe have a lot of money, simple things. And, you know, there's a a recent study that found simple things like, you know, a hybrid approach to working, which allows parents to stay home, maybe half the week, or maybe one week, you know, this first of the month or or whatever, like simple approaches that may seem in your mind as unimportant can make all the difference. And so engaging with your employees, but also the type of employees that you don't see reflect in your workforce to find out what they need, what is important to them, what they prioritize is so critical. And those are things that you can do right now, or, you know, we're heading into the new year, you could do, um, you can factor that into your plans for Q1, and you, you will see a difference in the outcome that your team puts out if your employee base reflects the customer you're hoping um, to attract.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you were talking about the issue might not necessarily be the pipeline, but I know that also you are the founder of Venture Kids, a nonprofit that provides food, laptops, and STEM programs to underserved youth living in cities and rural communities across North America. And I think that that's just an amazing initiative just in order to help grow that pipeline and bring people that children that will turn into adults that might not have been able to get those opportunities without that type of outreach. And the STEM field is exponentially growing. What are some things that you think that anti-fraud professionals can do to help encourage the next generation of fraud fighters to get involved and also specifically in anti-fraud tech?
1: Yeah, I love fraud fighters. It sounds like a group of superheroes. Kind of love it. Um, Can I get that on a t-shirt? Yeah, so, you know, Venture Kids, what we do is we we provide, you know, the resources, the training uh, for students who are interested in going into STEM and who maybe perhaps want to start their own business or startup in the near future. And that includes providing laptops, that includes providing food boxes. We used to be in person and provide food, but obviously things have changed, and it's safer to do drop-offs and to provide all of this for free. And so I think, again, that kind of goes to the idea that, oh, it's a pipeline problem. So if we just educate enough people, they'll, they'll end up in the space and they'll want to stay. But for a lot of kids, um, who are in in food insecure households or at or below the poverty line? It's very challenging uh, to learn on an empty stomach if your home has an empty fridge. You know, it's it's very challenging to learn the basics of code if you don't have a laptop and you're doing it on your mobile. So those are some of the factors that go into creating a more diverse workforce. And we, you know, we teach kids from, you know, as you mentioned, across North America. Um, So excited for the US. Uh, If there's anyone listening and they have children and they're interested in our program, they should go to venturekids.ca. But we teach anyone, uh, doesn't matter their race, their religion, their ethnicity. It doesn't matter where they live. They can sign up for our free programs because we understand poverty is such a huge factor when it comes to education and it comes to professional success. So that's just one thing we can do. Um, I think another part, and and I think this is where governments come into place, is digital literacy. And you mentioned that earlier in our chat. And I think digital literacy is such an incredibly important part of this because we have to understand that not every child has access to um, the type of information and knowledge and resources to make the best informed decision for them. And I think fundamental choice is such a huge thing. And if you don't understand privacy policies or security policies, then it's really hard for you um, to understand how and why the thing, things that happen do. How can you protect your personal data information if you misunderstand how an application will use, abuse, or sell your info? So digital literacy is huge. And there's, there's no way that one organization can solve that issue it comes down to providing that type of training and information in public schools so that everyone regardless of their uh, income their household where they live can start making those choices um, for themselves and you know we're always talking about the fact that we want an educated um diverse next generation to enter into the tech space and what are all these big fortune 500 companies going to do if the next generation don't have those useful tools in their back pocket to use. And, you know, on top of that, I want to say that because of the world we live in, I really feel like learning some of the basics of digital privacy, when it comes to coding, when it comes to just basic information, um, it's such a necessity, I kind of see it like learning how to read and write. Like it's it's an essential part of being an adult and living your life and making money. And we should treat digital literacy the same. Um, you would never ever be okay with a school not teaching children how to read or, or write, but it's okay for them not to understand the basics of, you know, digital hygiene. That seems, yeah, it doesn't make any sense um, to me. And so if we believe that those, if we believe reading and writing are critical skills that any adult needs to have, then shouldn't we feel that way about digital literacy and security um, if they're entering into a world where everything um, somehow finds its way back to remote or online work? It's just, you know, yeah. necessity. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, you would think that there would be more more emphasis put on that just with being realistic about the world that we live in nowadays. So, but yeah, it's awesome. That you're doing so much to help through Venture Kids. Again, she already mentioned the website, but venturekids.ca go visit. Donate, see if there's anything you can do to help.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. And also I just want to say, like volunteers, like if you are working in the space and you also um feel like this mission speaks to you or and you want to give back, like we also have volunteers as well who help teach our courses that help with curriculum. So it's really um. Important, and I just want to add one more thing. I feel like that's that's my like motto, my saying for this interview. One more thing, um, or I'd like to add, uh, but I do want to share that there are a lot of programs and boot camps that are um, aimed at providing this type of education to young people, but they are incredibly expensive. Um, they they offer, you know um you know maybe digital literacy programs or they offer um coding classes that you can do at home or you know after school and the problem with that is if it's it's incredibly expensive for a child to sign up for these programs that means there's a whole community um that can't and we require everyone in society to participate and be able to learn and make safe decisions for themselves so you know, these expensive programs are alienating the entire group of people um, who have the right to understand, you know, how the internet works, you know, privacy and security for themselves and for their loved ones. So I just want to add that. You know, one thing I want to add is that <laughs> I feel like in in tech, in this industry, we talk a lot about the type of people we need uh, in order for Our country, you know, again, a Canadian, but our country or our industry or society to move forward, that tech will provide um, solutions to some of the biggest problems that humanity is facing right now, that this is our golden ticket to to be better. And I think when we talk about those things, we talk about engineers and and developers um, and privacy and security experts. And those people are so critical. They are incredibly important. But you know what else was important? is having historians and sociologists and, you know, people who study human behavior. Those people are so important as well when we're developing new products and we're thinking about what a future with AI, for example, looks like. Um, those people, I think, are undervalued and often left out of this conversation about what the future looks like and and what technology can do for humans and for society. And I I really do believe that they should be, they should just always automatically be thought of as essential parts of any discussion. I, I, I have seen so, so many tools and so many programs that are created for, a wide range of people that, you know, perhaps will determine, you know, if you can get into this university um, through, you know, an AI um, program, or, you know, if this tool will find that you are suitable for this type of work, or if you, if it believes that you are, you know, you should be able to access this type of service, whether it's, you know, housing or welfare, et cetera. And it, doesn't include people who understand human nature and how these tools can be used and abused. So I would just add that, you know, if you're listening to this, and you're thinking about, you know, introducing a new tool, or you're thinking about, you know, what type of future sounds, the type of future you and you would want your children to be in that you should think about why it's so important to have um, different perspectives, different outlooks, different you know education um in this space it's just it's just so it's just so important I I love Star Trek it's like my favorite series I've watched every every show every episode even the ones I don't like I'm not gonna say which series is the best because I'll get hate mail based on that (laughs) but I feel like everyone, you know, who who's a Trekkie has fallen in love with what the future looks like in Star Trek. It's a utopia, you know. There's so many um, opportunities, and you have all of, you know, different alien races coming together to to create a better future. But that only happens if human beings can understand that you need to have different perspectives, and you need to take into account, um, you know, human behavior. And I just I just hope that, you know, people who create these programs hear that and think about what that means. Yeah. So yeah. I guess that's it. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. No, that makes so much sense. I mean, I've even heard that starting to be talked about with very specifically machine learning and AI with anti-fraud programs and how people might say like, okay, well, we can get tech people to figure out what types of patterns that the software needs to be looking at, but then they also, they need to talk to fraud examiners to be like, well, what's the actual human behavior that might predicate this? What are some of the behavioral red flags that HR might be aware of, but we need to build those into this software. It's not just numbers. It's not just that unstructured data. It's it's a lot more, it's a lot more layered. And yeah, if we don't take that part of, of life and being a human into account, it's going to end up missing specifically fraud, fraud stuff. But um, just overall, yeah, I think I agree wholeheartedly with everything you just said.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's so important. And just again, huh? one more thing, gotta stay on brand. Um, I do also think that Um, A lot of the time we ask, you know, the individual person or users to adjust their behavior to suit institutions or algorithms and and people who have different um, lives, have different types of agency or power over their day to day lives, may not be able to do that. So thinking again about the privilege that some people have whether it's even the ability to work remotely um, and how, if you're creating a tool or a service, what that service could mean for someone who doesn't live your life or doesn't have your financial security, lives perhaps in a place that doesn't allow for some of like the safety regulations that you enjoy is is also really important to to think about. But that's it, I swear. That's the last (laughs) thing I'll say.
0: No, absolutely. uh, Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. I feel like we've had an amazing conversation. You have provided so much insight that I'm sure our listeners will love to hear. Um, And again, very excited to hear from you again in March at our Women's Summit. Um, So, for anyone interested in joining that, you can find more information on the ACFE website, but that's going to be March 8th, I believe. New York, but also virtual. So wherever you're coming from, you can join. Um, But yeah, thank you again for taking the time to to talk to us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for listening. You can find this podcast along with all other episodes of Fraud Talk on acfe.com, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This has been Sarah Thompson signing off.